we're back to Scripture, and if you have not been with us, we're in the middle of a sermon series titled Life As It Should Be, and we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, these incredible life-altering words of Jesus that we've been wrestling with, and our prayer is that if we find ourselves living life out of sync, out of touch, disconnected, with some distance from the description of life as Jesus puts forth in these words, that our prayer is that as we wrestle with these words, that we would come closer in sync, that our lives could resemble more closely what Jesus describes. And so we're continuing where we left off. If you have your Bibles, um, I left my physical Bible in my bag. I'm not on it today. Uh, yeah, p- please pray for me. And so Matthew... <laughs> 7:13 to 20. Matthew 7:13 to 20. It says this: Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Jesus is asking, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity that we have as a community to worship you, to gather around your word. We come with expectant hearts. Speak to us. Help us to see you more clearly, to hear your voice. Challenge us, convict us, transform us, Lord, bathe us in your love. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Have you ever been to a graduation ceremony um, for someone else? If you have been to one for yourself, you remember it a bit differently, but the ones that you're there it's really an act of love, isn't it? When you're invited, you're like, you're honored, but slightly like, oh man, if I would have known, maybe I wouldn't have been as close to you as we are. Um, Because you know you're going to endure a long day, often uh, in an air-conditioned space, the hot season of the year, and you're there to witness your loved one, your friend, walk across the stage, stand up, be acknowledged for a significant milestone in their life. And custom has it that during that graduation ceremony, there is a commencement speech. And now those commencement speeches come in all shapes and sizes and deliveries from all different kind of people, politicians, business people, graduates of the institution. But if I could whittle down all of them in one way, I would say all of them have one key thing in common. They're celebrating the moment of accomplishment, but then they're, in in essence, pushing people out the door into the real world and saying, go and use this skill that you've acquired. 
Go and change the world. Go and bring goodness and beauty with what you've been given. In many ways, this moment in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' commencement moment. Uh, Most scholars agree, the overwhelming majority agree, that from here on out to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus essentially is teaching us what it looks like and feels like to apply everything he said up until now. So if you've been paying attention these many weeks, this, this week and onward till we finish this series, really pay attention because what Jesus is going to be describing is some important things that we have to recognize and pay attention to if we are choosing to say yes to his invitation all this time. Everything he's taught, everything he showed us, he's going to describe to us what a life that internalizes that, is changed by that, is transformed by what he says, looks like, what it actually feels to follow Jesus. That's what he is doing right now. And if you notice in this text, there's a continuation of something that's happened in the Sermon on the Mount up until this moment, and also that's happened in different places in Scripture, that oftentimes when God speaks to us, He'll speak to us by offering us two paths, two options, two ways of life, and ultimately He calls us to choose one. If you're familiar with the Scriptures, if you've ever read Psalm 1, If you haven't, I encourage you this week, open your Bible, read Psalm 1, and you'll notice that in that psalm, a prayer, it's proposed that there's the way of the righteous and the way of the sinner. But if you've ever read the words where Moses is speaking to the children of Israel at a a pivotal moment in their history, and he declares on behalf of God to them, God saying, I put before you blessing and curses. Choose. Jesus is continuing that by telling us what it looks like to apply his teaching, to follow him, to say yes, is a choice between two paths, two gates, two roads, and he tells us to choose one. Look at how he describes the journey, the path, the life of someone who follows him. Notice his language. Listen to what he's saying. And he begins by saying, a life that follows my teaching, internalizes my truth, is living for me, is changed by my grace. The best way to describe it is someone who enters through a small gate and goes down a narrow path. That's interesting. I have a best friend. I've known him since high school. And, you know, the older I get, I cherish friends so much more because I realize I have had a lot of acquaintances, but very few friends. And one of the things that makes this bond really special is that um, throughout the years, whenever I've had like different ministry opportunities, especially the last several years associated with the book I wrote, God opened a lot of really incredible opportunities. I was traveling different places throughout the country. And because his job was super flexible, he was like working from home before it became a thing. Um, So we would go on these trips. And he's like the road trip guru. I I don't know anybody like him. He's taken like three, four week road trips in a row. Um, Driven all over the country. And because we've had a lot of time together as a good friend, does, they acquire a lot of data on you, 
and they'd know the things that they could uniquely make fun of you about. So he looks for those opportunities to remind me of how I would tense up during these road trips whenever we had to ride a road that was hugging a mountain. Let me tell you, I feel my shoulders tensing up right now as I'm thinking about some of these moments. In those moments, I know I was not built for these old country roads. No, no, no. Uh, give me a city. Give me, let me walk down a street where some potentially deranged person might stab me. That is safe to me. Going down a road on a mountain where we might die, that don't, doesn't do right. And so, so he would drive and he's super comfortable, relaxed, and every now and then, hey, you want to take the wheel? And, you know, you got to share the responsibility. I'm like, you're yeah, sure, and I do it reluctantly. And I'm so stiff as I'm driving. I'm like, turn down the music because it's distracting me from seeing, you know, just super, super tense. And what happens in those narrow paths, whether you're driving or going for a hike, on a narrow path, there is not much margin for error. You can't be unintentional. You have to be conscious. On a narrow path, there's certain things that you can't carry on that path, absolutely not. You can't tow a boat up certain narrow roads. You can't carry a bunch of stuff up certain paths that you're hiking. It's just not possible. But on top of that, there's certain narrow paths that if you actually want to traverse them, you cannot do it alone. You have to have specific gear. You have to have certain equipment because otherwise you won't survive. And so Jesus is describing how it feels to apply his teachings, to be transformed by him, to follow him, by saying, to follow me looks and feels like someone who is on a narrow path. He describes a life where there isn't much give, not much margin. It's intentional. You can't veer to the left or to the right without entering to a state of peril. And as I'm describing Jesus' description of following him, for some of us in the room, your shoulders are tensing up. You're like, that's not what I signed up for. That's not how someone proposed to me long ago to follow Jesus. I've been in those settings. I've heard those invitations where sometimes the invitation to follow Jesus is not one that sounds like this. It's actually, no, come follow him and your life is going to loosen up. Bigger room. You're going to go from that one-bedroom shack to the penthouse. You're going to be able to spread your wings. You're going to go from lack to plenty, from struggle to success. That... It's a hard thing to square that up with what Jesus is actually describing, to follow him. And so for some of us, it's a struggle to hear following Jesus in this way because we have heard quite often that to follow Jesus is nothing but just lots of room and lacks and freedom and kind of like this glorious anything goes kind of thing. It's just a path riddled with Skittles and, and gumdrops coming down on you. And just lots of little daisies everywhere. Pleasantness, no friction, no tension. 
And yet Jesus says, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to be like. So why do we struggle with this? Because often we have been fed an incomplete, deficient understanding of grace. What do I mean by that? Sometimes the only aspect of grace that we hear is unmerited favor, unmerited grace, radical welcome, unceasing hospitality from God to us. And that is all true, but incomplete. Look at what Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 15 says about the grace of God. Listen to these words. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed, blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. What a radically different perspective of grace than what we often hear. Titus is telling us the grace of God is not just unmerited favor, radical welcome. Nothing will be held against you. You, are, you don't stand in your righteousness. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus. That's what gives you confidence. Your sins are not held against you. And the grace of God also teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Look what he says. The grace of God at work in us produces a people that are eager to do what is good. And he says that Paul is writing this to Titus, who was an elder in this region and uh, over churches. And he's telling Titus, encourage and rebuke with all authority. And so an aspect of the grace of God that we need to hear, and because we don't hear it enough, when Jesus says, follow me down this small gate and narrow road, we say, hold up, I don't know about that. We have, an, we have a, a, an allergic reaction to it because we don't hear enough. The other aspect of the grace of God that says, it teaches you to say no. It teaches you to walk differently. It teaches us to stand out, to not just go with the current of the world. See, grace is not just directed at God welcoming us regardless of our sins, but it's also aimed at empowering us to obey. I remember years ago, a friend of mine was really, really kind, um, and he bought a vacation home, and he was about to put it on Airbnb, but before he did so, he said, hey, if you and your family want to come and hang out for a couple of days, you can do so free of charge. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so gracious. Um, and I refused to let him give it to me for free. Um, I just was struggling with that. And so 
he didn't let me pay him, so I sent him a box of steaks. And so I'm just like, deal with it. Um, if you don't want the steaks, give them away. But no, I sent them to you. And so God's still working on me receiving stuff. And so um, we get there, and this was the message. I want you to feel completely at home. And I was like, wow. It was a really beautiful home. Then he said, all, the, all, I'm, all you need to do is before you leave, if you could just clean up. That's it. And so my kids get there, and they're going nuts. Wow. And they heard him say, feel at home. And so as soon as he left, I was like, no, that you, don't, you don't feel at home. I know what that looks like. I live with y'all. Feel like you are in a detention center, you know? <laughs> I'm your warden. And I was just stressed. I was like, you better not break anything. You break it, you pay for it. I don't have a job, Dad. Figure it out. And so, but if you could, all analogies break down at a certain point, but if you could just sit with this for a second. In many ways, God, God's grace tells us the same thing. You are welcome. Make yourself at home. But clean up. It's not anything goes. You're welcome. But don't put your feet on the couch. You're welcome. But throw that garbage out. You're welcome. But don't leave it a mess. The grace of God is telling us those things equally. See, it, uh, this, this invitation of a small gate and a narrow path, what's amazing about it is that the grace of God tells us that what you're carrying won't be held against you from coming in this gate. But the grace of God also tells us that things that you're carrying that won't be held against you, you won't be able to continue to carry them if you're going to go past the gate. You can't keep carrying it. The grace of God also tells us that the world would say, you have no right to carry X, Y, and Z. You have no right to carry peace and joy and comfort down this path. You have to live this sad, curmudgeon life to follow Jesus. No joy. And Jesus says, no, no. That I'm going to put on you. That you're going to carry as you walk down this path. And so there's this tension of things that we absolutely have to let go of and things that we absolutely have to grab hold of from God if we're going to walk this narrow path. And as I reflected on this passage and began to process what does this mean for my walk with God and began to think of all the years of pastoring and, and walking with people as together we follow Jesus, I realized that so much struggle in the Christian life stems from us trying to carry stuff down the narrow road that we were supposed to lay down at the gate. Refusing to let go of things that Jesus has clearly said, if you're going to follow me, you have to let this go. And often us refusing to grab hold of what we absolutely can't let go of, his love, his grace, his mercy. Jesus says to follow him. And often we continue and refuse to let go of our bitterness, of our revenge, our selfishness, our pride. Sometimes we just continue to live life in this unquestioned way. We don't stop and ask the question, 
Am I living as Jesus calls me to live? Am I truly in sync honoring him? See, one of the things that we have to wrestle with when we look at how Jesus frames this, and this is really unpopular, this is really something that our culture resists, and we, it's in us to resist it slightly ourselves. If you look at Jesus' language and how he describes it, notice you will realize the absence of neutrality. Jesus says, there's a narrow path, there's a broad path, there's a small gate, there's a large gate, choose the narrow one. He doesn't come to us and say, you know, whichever you prefer. At no point does Jesus come to us and say, you know, the way I designed your life, I designed it for it to operate best if you let go of these things, but it seems like you're really attached to them, like you really depend on your pride and your selfishness and your anger and, and you know, a little bit of racism in your heart. It's kind of part of the furniture of your life, and I get it, and so I'm just going to choose to roll with that, okay? Cool? All right, cool. At no point does Jesus let his foot off the, the, the gas. He keeps pushing and saying, no, what I told you to lay down I will keep telling you to lay down. It doesn't fit on this narrow path. You know, one, um, one of the things I missed during the height of the pandemic was the ability to go work at a coffee shop because they weren't open. And so, um, so I was at home missing that rhythm. Um, and then when things began to open up, it felt like normal again. And in those coffee shops, uh, because I have small kids, I've had to learn how to focus on just to be able to work with all types of distractions. And so it could be loud and I could be pretty focused, but every now and then something will catch my attention, a conversation. And I know this is really, really bad theology, but I really believe that for good behavior, God lets me hear insane things that make me laugh. That doesn't, that's not actually biblical, but I just believe that. Um, so there was one week that I think I was extra good because I heard one of the most insane New York moments where there was these two uh, folks walking by and they were friends or family, don't know, but they knew each other. And one of them said, I have to read this. If I want to make love to my brother, abuse drugs, and listen to country music, that's my choice. To which his friend said, speak your truth. <laughs> Can I tell you, in love... Jesus hears that and says, I refuse to let you have truth that's riddled with falsehood. He will confront that. He won't just let that exist unchecked. See, we live in a culture that when God speaks to us and tells us yes or no, our culture responds maybe in undecided in this ambiguous place. But there's no undecided, neutral posture that Jesus is allowing for. Um, it says there's two paths, choose one. Tells us which one to choose. 
And later on, he tells us that on the broad path, the one that we're to resist, there are false prophets. And so if there are false prophets, that means there's true prophets. And so he's trying to draw our attention that there is clear truth in this world and there are clear lies in this world. There is right and there is wrong. And for that statement, the world would choose to crucify us over that. What do you mean there's right? What do you mean there's wrong? Because we live in a world that has exalted the individual to such a degree that you can't understand. Some scholars talk about you can't understand modern people without understanding expressive individualism, where, where we live in a world that the individual is permitted granted authority given just encouragement to express themselves at nauseum with no checks, no balances, no pushback, and to actually insinuate that you could have an opinion that's false would be to be an oppressor, to communicate an act of violence to the soul. Yet Jesus is saying there are no neutral paths. There's one path that's better for you, one that leads to life, another one that leads to death, no neutrality. There are true prophets and false prophets, no neutrality. And now, to be clear, as Christians, we're supposed to be at our best, respectful, loving, and tolerant of other people's decisions and their lives and, and the religions they espouse. And we do so, but we do so never thinking or allowing for the false idea that Jesus is on one side of the scale and other things are on the other side and it's kind of even. No. Jesus is truer. Jesus is more beautiful. That's not saying that other things can't be true, but we do respectfully in love say he's truer. Because otherwise, why are we wasting our time worshiping and singing to a God that we could be worshiping and singing a chair or something else, and, and who can challenge that? Because it's all equal. There's no neutrality in this call to follow him. But then it gets even deeper because Jesus says that on this broad path, that there's no restrictions, there's no, there's no brakes being applied, there's no seatbelts used in this broad path. You, whatever g comes and goes, it doesn't matter. There's no check against the individual. Your life, you're your own God. You can call your own shots on the broad path. Jesus says, you're going to have company on that path. Actually, a lot of company. Many will be on that path, but in particular, there's some folks that are traveling on that road that Jesus calls false prophets. And when he names false prophets to the audience that he was speaking to at that time, that would have hearkened their memory to remember what the prophet Jeremiah said about false prophets, where during Israel's time, there were false prophets that existed, and he corrected them. And the way he corrected them, he said that these false prophets would communicate visions from their own mind, not from the Lord. But one of the other things that false prophets did that was very destructive was that when God's people would stray and disobey in incredibly heinous ways, false prophets would say, Jeremiah said, they would say, peace, peace. 
In other words, it doesn't matter. God's standards, it's, it's okay if you deviate from them, if you totally disregard them. Peace, peace. Don't be bothered. Don't be bothered by your sin. Don't be bothered by your disobedience. Peace, peace. And can I tell you, I say this with a broken heart, there are so many voices in the church that sound like that today that are willing to baptize anything and call it Christian, that preach a gospel that requires no repentance, no confession of sin, that what is Jesus actually saving us from if we could do this without his help? What are we actually turning to if we're not turning away from sin? But we'll go a bit deeper. There's not just false prophets in the religious sense or even in the Christian community, preachers and teachers that lessen and diminish and dilute God's word. But there's also like it's in the air in our culture. There's a secular version of this that is constantly trying to point us away from God and toward the God of self. Constantly putting us on the throne and pushing God off of it. And there's so much confusion at times because Jesus calls us to lay down our old ways. But if you search long enough, you'll find a preacher, a teacher in the church that'll tell you, you don't have to do that. It's all right. You can keep living the way you want to live. Jesus will co-sign everything. Happy Sunday morning, right? Um, He doesn't stop there, though. He actually tells us to test the fruit. So he's telling us two things. He's telling us we have to be discerning to the teaching that we're hearing, the truth that's being preached. And we have to be discerning to know Is this consistent with the historic confession of the church that throughout the ages has called the people of God to faithfulness to God and to, to turn from sin? So we have to be discerning. We have to actually study this out. But he also says these false prophets and these wolves in sheep's clothing, another way that you have to be alert is not only to test the quality of their doctrine and their teaching, but also to test the quality of their lives. It's not just enough for something to be doctrinally true, yet the life of the person or the people to be absent of the virtue that should be present if the truth is transforming them. The fruit of our lives should match the truth that we declare. And so when it comes to testing a false teacher, a false prophet, we're looking to not just hear is the truth that they're saying biblically consistent, but we're looking to see is the life that they're living biblically consistent. I can tell you, I know some preachers that could preach the paint off the wall 
They're that dynamic. They're that good. And I wouldn't trust them to take care of a plant. <laughs> and I mean that not with no happiness. You know what it's like to like wrestle with my own vocation? Like, I don't, like what do you do? Uh, I don't want to say it sometimes when people ask because I know there's a lot of baggage. But I love you enough to say this knowing that as I say it, you point it back to me. That this is a standard I need to be held toward myself. That it's not just enough for me to say the right truthful things and to live inconsistently with it. Both have to be in place. And for you to be on this narrow path, what you're going to need are not false prophets that steer you toward the broad path and don't challenge you and don't confront you when, when sin is present. You're going to need true prophets that actually love you enough to tell you difficult truths. There are a few people in my life, I could count on one hand, I've given them that kind of access into my life. And you know why I did? Because of the sea of people I've met over my lifetime at various moments, they spoke difficult truths to me. Where I said, man, I've been around all these people, nobody said anything. This person confronted me on that. And at that moment, it's like, it's going to be annoying to be close to you, but it's going to be really healthy. It's going to be tough. You're going to say some things that I'm not going to want to hear but I'm, I'm going to need it. If in your life you only have a chorus of affirmation following you, where people just sing, yes, 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 behind you, and they never confront you, they never challenge you, find a balance. Get some people that love you enough to say, hey, I mean this with charity in my heart, but could there be some pride in your life right now? I know they wronged you, and I don't like what they did, but it doesn't sound like you're choosing to forgive the way Christ tells you to forgive. You ever tell somebody that in the heat of their anger and their bitterness? Rarely gets a good response. Like, no, you're supposed to hate them with me. You're, you need to have those people in your life. Our church needs it. The, the people of God need it. Jesus, as we close and as the worship team makes their way forward, I want to end with this thought. For many of us, as we've been together this morning and hearing this text and hearing the words of Jesus and wrestling with what it's saying, I would assume that for some of us, there's probably like a short list developing of things that you have to lay down. Say, man, I, I know I need to lay this down. I've been, my struggle is I've been trying to carry this thing down the narrow path that does not fit. I've been trying to get God to baptize and bless this thing that will never be blessed. It's just inconsistent with his way. I have to lay it down. But you and I would be set up for such utter misery if what we're hearing from this invitation of Jesus 
is things that we have to do in order to be righteous, in order to honor him. Because the gospel also declares that you and I will never be righteous based on what we do. We will only be seen as righteous based on what Jesus has done on our behalf. And it's faith in that alone that gives us a foundation we stand on. You and I are not standing on the foundation of our own good works and our own obedience. And if you and I come to the gate that Jesus invites us to down this narrow path, and if you and I walk away with the false idea that the, the more I lay things down, the more accepted I'll be, then we're hearing it wrong. He invites us to lay these things down, not in order to be loved, but because of his love. Because I love you enough that I don't want you to carry these things that you were not designed to carry, that will weigh you down, that will keep you from walking down this narrow path. You know what I'm amazed by as we close? That Jesus actually lets us through the gate. It, that does not cease to amaze me. These many years later, he could have stopped us at the gate and said, get your life together. Then I'll let you in. Go away for a little bit. Work on some things. Change your path. Change your way of life. But no, he says, come into the gate. What you're carrying won't be held against you. But what you're carrying can't go with you. Could we stand? Jesus. As we respond to God in these next few moments, I want to invite you. If you feel comfortable doing so, could we raise our hands in the presence of God? And here's what we're going to do. The prayer team is in the back. At any given moment during these next few moments, you can slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer for any of the words that were shared earlier or anything that you're carrying. But as we respond to God, I want to invite you and encourage you to bring before the Lord everything you're carrying and allow him and him alone to tell you the things that need to be laid down, that his love invites you to lay down lay it at his feet we're going to sing and we're going to respond and then we're going to go right from there into our extended worship and prayer time I'll come up and close officially and at that moment if you're here for the extended worship and prayer time just continue to worship if you're not be blessed on your way out we love you and we're so glad we were able to worship together Let's respond to God. We come to you now, Lord. You let us in the gate when we don't deserve it. And now your love empowers us to lay down what we couldn't lay down on our own. Meet us, God. Let's worship him.